Okay, so if you've picked up a copy of the handout for this week, you see at the top there, uh, if you've been uh, here for the last couple weeks of Ecclesiastes, uh, you see that's review uh, at the top, um, where I have there that the best thing in the world is to eat, to drink, and to enjoy your labor. This is the gift of God. And those uh, chapter and verse markers uh, that fall under that point there uh, are indicators within Solomon's structure and his wording that he has intentionally sort of divided his text up at those points, uh, and also through his repetition of that theme, of that main point, he's telling us that, that this is the main point of what he's talking about, that the point of Ecclesiastes is that we should enjoy life as God's good gift. Uh, Now, as we've gone through the first two weeks of Ecclesiastes, we looked at kind of an introduction to the book, an introduction to Solomon as the author, Uh, and we've seen kind of the recurring theme, especially of chapter one, but it's reinforced also in uh, what Solomon proceeds to do and to talk about in chapter two, which is vanity, that all things are vain, all things are futile. Um, That first fill in the blank there, there is one major aspect of our reality, the world in which we live, with which Solomon would teach us to grasp, uh, to grapple, and that is curse. Curse is the one major aspect of our reality that Solomon is teaching us how to respond to, how to live with. And his response, in sum, is that we should enjoy life, even in a cursed world, as God's good gift. Uh, Now, still by way of review, um, I've highlighted probably a couple times just the reality that God talked about in Genesis 2, uh, chapter verse 17, when he promised Adam and Eve that if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if they violated the instruction he was giving them not to do so, in that day they would surely die. And of course, Adam and Eve proceeded in chapter 3 of Genesis to eat. And how did that manifest immediately? What did they do relative to God? When he came looking for them, how did they respond? They hid. They went away from him. God himself being life, being light, they, by their own choice at that, part, at that point, they fulfilled what he said would happen, which was they would turn away from life. Um, as I was thinking about this and sort of writing it down uh, in order to review it at this point, it made me think of uh, Oh, Sing My Soul, the song by Matt Boswell. Verse 2 goes like this. Oh, worship him, our Father God, the Spirit and the Word, who fashioned all things from his joy and saw that it was good. So God created everything good. This is sort of summarizing uh, Genesis 1. What perfection of friendship, what communion we shared, uh, summarizing uh, Genesis 2, really, that God had created man to enjoy fellowship with him, and that is what he enjoyed. Uh, And then this last line is what really made me think of it. But choosing death, we fell from life aside the guilty pair. Uh, And of course, that's capturing what happened when Adam and Eve chose sin. And we, Paul teaches in Romans 5, uh, in some sense, sinned together with Adam, are responsible uh, for his sin and thus inherit uh, death. We inherit the curse as our right. Um, now that, you know, is just a reminder, we sing good theology, so it's good to pay attention to those things and have them come to mind when you see those truths in Scripture. So whereas before the fall, everything was good, 
uh, because everything was alive to God, with the fall, everything was cursed, uh, such that man no longer related to creation for God's sake. So instead of being Godward in the way he experienced and related to creation, we talked about how man turned in, curved in, we curved in on ourselves. Uh, now we, man, we could inevitably, we could and inevitably would pursue the creation for its own sake, for our own sakes, uh, worshiping and serving, as Paul says, the creature rather than the creator. Uh, and so what Solomon is doing in Ecclesiastes, we've seen, is he's largely recording his testing of every aspect of creation to see if it could satisfy for its own sake. He considered pleasure, eating, drinking, sexual pleasure, the indulgence of every desire for great works, building houses, building grounds, pools, forests for himself, uh, basically giving him everything, giving himself everything he could possibly desire. Uh, he even turned to consider wisdom and folly, and at first that seemed promising because wisdom seemed better than folly, uh, but in the end, even considered for its own sake, wisdom didn't lead to anything other than futility for its own sake. So his summary is that it's a grievous thing what God has given to man to do under the sun. We are under a curse, and we can't do anything about it. Chapter 1, verse 15 says, what is crooked cannot be straightened. There's nothing we can do, we, and that's the operative word. We, man, cannot do anything about the curse. All we can do, Solomon is teaching us, is to learn to live with contentment. And we looked ahead to chapter 12 and saw the whole point of everything is the fear of God. The fear of God helps us to be content and to enjoy life, even life under curse, as God's good gift. Uh, and a big part of this is learning to count it all loss. Uh, that is, if we can learn from Solomon, we will see that it is nothing to deny ourselves, to deny the allure of pleasure in this life, and to count that as loss and to follow Christ instead. So Solomon's message of irreversible curse is helpful here in, in a very particular way. <clears throat> now, in studying this the last few weeks, uh, the idea of living with the curse uh, and counting it all loss and, and cultivating that sensibility has been very much on my mind uh, and so, I think it was Tuesday, actually, for, it's a great requirement for one of my classes, every week I'm having to read Romans 1 to 8. Uh, so I did that, I think it was Tuesday, and it really struck me when I got to chapter 8, uh, how Paul picks up on this idea of futility, and, and you can almost count on it that if Scripture mentions futility after Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, it's pointing you back there, pointing you back there and kind of summarizing what Solomon teaches, just even with that word. So Paul writes in, in Romans 8, verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And this was really encouraging to me in light of sort of focusing on living with life uh, under curse, that there's hope here. Verse 21, that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And of course, that redemption, that ultimate redemption that everything is driving towards has already been purchased at an infinite cost. Paul continues in verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And then of course, at the end of chapter 8, that lengthy list of the fact that all of creation serves the purpose, ultimately, of accomplishing redemption. 
Uh, not life, not death, not angels, not principalities, things present, things to come. Nothing can keep us from the love of God that will be manifested in redemption. So what was really just in summary encouraging to me, there is even more of an unstoppable reality than curse is the unstoppable reality of redemption, um, which is just glorious. Uh, and that, I think, is a fill-in-the-blank. As certain as un- and unstoppable as the curse is in our experience, redemption is just as certain and really even more so uh, and unstoppable. And there's the citation from Romans 8. Uh, and that is actually a good segue into chapter 3, where Solomon begins the next part of his argument. Uh, again, what we've seen in the first two chapters is that all of creation, everything in it, including all of man's capacities, Uh, and even Solomon's as the greatest and wisest king ever to live, all of it is nothing but vanity and futility. All of it is just a striving after the wind. Um, Solomon has established that what he is looking for, satisfaction, meaning these things will not be found in man, they will not be found in creation at all. And then past that, past those first couple of chapters, what we find in chapters 3 through 5 Uh, is that meaning, in particular, uh, is found in God, in his perfect and all-encompassing, his all-sovereign plan over all things and all people and all time. Uh, Now, what Solomon does is he just states this uh, in a very straightforward but also in a very poetic way in the first 15 verses of chapter 3. You might recognize this as a popular song from the 70s, frequently read at weddings, at funerals, Um, there's a reason for that. It's incredibly poetic, and really even more so in the Hebrew. There's uh, sort of an assonance and rhyming throughout that uh, is just beautiful. Uh, But it's beautiful in the English also. I'll go ahead and read it, starting with verse 1 in chapter 3. And go ahead and open uh, to Ecclesiastes 3 if you haven't already. Solomon writes, There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. So all of man's experience uh, summarized there in the first, uh, and these are contrasts, and you you may already be aware of that, extreme contrast to demonstrate everything is under God's perfect plan, perfect and comprehensive plan. A time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. So going from you know, that huge encapsulation of our experience of life and death to something mundane like planting and gathering like vegetables. Verse 3, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. Again, mundane tasks you know, times to to just discard something that seems worthless, and other times when those things need to be gathered because they're useful for a task. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Uh, And then verse 9, he comes to kind of a summary question. 
which is the same as his, his original question in verse 3 of chapter 1, and it is this, what profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? So it's been given to us all of these times for these various purposes, but it makes him think again, what is the purpose of all of it? There in, verse, in chapter 1, he turned to consider creation, the futility of it. But here, his consideration includes God's plan, God's timing, God's perfect control over everything. So in answer to that question, verses 10 and 11 should be taken together. Solomon continues, I have seen the task which God has given the sons of man with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate. Uh, And that's the NASB. The better word, actually, the literal word is beautiful. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. Uh, And this, again, is an allusion back to Genesis, the fact that we are the only creature created in God's image. We're made by God and in his image. Of all his creatures, we are the only ones that yearn to figure out God's plan. We can sense there's something bigger, but, but he's put that in our hearts unlike the other creatures. <clears throat> Solomon continues, Yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. Um, as we saw, this is, this is the reality of curse. We are alienated from God because of the fall, and we will not know his plan and its vastness until we know him. And that, that is what Solomon is driving at here, is that uh, we turned away from him, we live rightly under curse, and the only solution to that longing, that urge we feel to figure things out, is to turn to him, to know him, to fear him. For us to choose the creation, or any part of it, to give ourselves to, or to seek satisfaction from, apart from knowing God, will always be futility. So Solomon's kind of starting to combine these two realities, the futility of creation for its own sake and the fulfillment of everything, the fulfillment of all understanding of God's plan in the fear of God himself. So looking for any kind of meaning or satisfaction in the creation will always be futility. Uh, So instead, we see again here, as we saw at the end of chapter 2, and we'll continue to see it repeatedly, man must come to grips with the fact that God has given this life, even this life under curse, as a good gift that can be enjoyed for God's sake. He continues, verse 12, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor, it is the gift of God. And then, starting in verse 14, he gives further explanation, and here is where we see the first indication of the point of it all, or, or really not so much the point of it all, but how it is possible to accomplish the point of it all, which is enjoying life as God's good gift. Uh, Solomon's starting to explain, this is how that works. He says, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. And that is not our natural impulse. Our natural impulse under sin, under curse, is like we saw with Adam and Eve right away in the garden when they sinned, is to go away from God. And really, James explains in James chapter 1, that started with the desire itself, the futile desire to trust in yourself, to look for satisfaction, to look for meaning in the creation, to basically take the place of God. 
So what Solomon is calling us to is instead of fearing or worshiping self, our capacities, our ability to make the creation do something it was never intended to do, is to repent of that and to come to God. Now, I think in the first week, I pointed out from chapter 12 and went back there again last week, the, the sum of all things, Solomon says, is to fear God and keep his commandments. And I said that's gospel language, and we'll see that whole idea of fearing God uh, throughout these next few chapters. Uh, and, and the reason I say that's gospel language is the gospel is, I think you could say, assumed. It's implicit in the idea of fearing God. Because if we were told that we would die uh, when we sinned, and in fact we did, uh, and turned away from life, but then we see in uh, Genesis 3 and then just the first verse in 4 that Eve is called the mother of all the living. Eve and Adam are made alive by the truth of the gospel. The gospel has to be there for us to turn away from futility, to turn away from ourselves, to turn away from the creation, and to come back to the source of life, to come back to life. And so Solomon, very much a student of the scriptures as a king who had to copy the scriptures over, is, is certainly aware of the essential uh, requirement of the gospel for one to be able to turn and to fear God. So let me just say what Solomon is assuming here, which is, you know, he knows this promise in uh, seed form, uh, so to speak, that um, it was promised to the woman and then promised to Abraham and then promised to uh, Solomon's father, David, that the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, would, would uh, have his heel crushed by the serpent, but would eventually crush the serpent's head. And in the fullness of time, uh, when the time was right, God uh, accomplished that through Jesus Christ, sent him to earth, made him incarnate, made him one of us, and put him on the cross uh, to have his heel crushed, so to speak, sent him to the grave, and, and then raised him from the dead three days later. Uh, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. He will come to crush the head of the serpent and fulfill every aspect of biblical promise. And so there, there is what Solomon is assuming there, and that is necessary to understand. If you're going to turn from the creation, turn from fearing, worshiping yourself, the creation, to fearing and worshiping God, the gospel is essential. And here I think the gospel is implicit. <clears throat> so that was verse 14, uh, that God has set up things in such a way that we will see our utter smallness and lack of control as we see uh, if we can come to grips with what Solomon is teaching us, we have no choice but to fear God. It will do us no good to fear or to worship any aspect of creation, or for that matter, to add, or, add to or to subtract from God's plan. All of that is vain, and that's what Solomon's been testing. Is there anything that I can do to make creation and the enjoyment of it not futile for its own sake? And the answer is no. It will always be futile. So we must surrender and we must fear God. That is the only way to enjoy life as God's good gift. Verse 15, he continues, That which is has been already, and that which will be has already been. And remember before, that was a statement of futility, but here he adds this, 
for God seeks what has passed by. And, and here we see, I think, hope, because the reality is resurrection is a reality, and eternal life is a reality. Those who have died, everything that has suffered under curse is not done. God seeks what has passed by. There is hope for the future. Verse 15 is something of a summary statement, that God is comprehensively in control of his own plan. God knows and controls the end from the beginning. Um, That last part, God seeks what has passed by, uh, it's not real easy necessarily to understand. Um, it's, It's best really, like I said, to understand it that he's saying resurrection is a reality. Future life, eternal life is a reality. Um, and not, not so much that it's talking about specifically martyrs, which is what um, Luther would say, uh, but that in context, it's more general. Like as we saw in Romans 8, all things that God has created, although they have passed uh, thousands of years in futility, they're actually not futile. They're actually not vain. Creation groans, but it will be redeemed. God seeks what has passed by. He's mindful of it, and he will not let it be for nothing. Um, creation, ultimately including time, which is what Solomon started chapter 3 with, will glorify God. Uh, So verses 1 to 15 have introduced us to God's beautiful and comprehensive and sovereign plan over all time and creation. Uh, And that's a blank there. God has a beautiful and comprehensive plan for everything and everyone in his creation. Uh, All things proceed according to God's purpose, a fact that can lead us to fear him and so to enjoy life as God's good gift. Starting in verse 16 uh, and then continuing through the end of chapter 4, Solomon turns to consider uh, some things that could be construed as anomalies or as apparent contradictions to his claim that God has a beautiful plan for all things and times and people. Um, you're filling the blanks there, 3.16 to 4.16, several realities that might lead you to doubt God's beautiful and comprehensive plan. First, in verses 16 and 17, there is unrighteousness where there is supposed to be righteousness in the halls of justice, which just basically means with the government. Uh, Solomon writes, furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, And in the place of righteousness, there is wickedness. And I think probably in part because he is a ruling authority, this is so grievous to Solomon that he seems to comfort himself by giving some immediate commentary that remembers God's ultimate justice. Verse 17, I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. So God's justice, God's righteousness will win out in the end. It won't be futile. Uh, In verses 18 to 21, Solomon considers that men and beasts share the same fate. Um, So kind of the question is, how can it be that all is not vain if men and animals alike come to nothing? If we just go into Sheol, if we just go into the ground, if that happens to everyone. Solomon writes, I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God surely has tested them. Um, So the effect should be when we see death that the same thing happens to men and that happens to animals uh, is that we should see uh, that we need God, that we need some understanding outside of ourselves, some capacity 
outside of ourselves to figure that out, what he's put in our hearts uh, in terms of eternity, to figure out the end from the beginning, that we would turn and search for God. So God surely has tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. Verse 19, for the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. So just looking at it from an external perspective, your dog dies and your child dies. That's just hard. That's unthinkable. And so the effect, again, should be that we turn and we search for God. The fate of men and of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. All go to the same place, all came from the dust, and all return to the dust. Verse 21, kind of a a despairing-sounding question. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the beast descends downward to the earth? That is the truth, and Solomon knows it, but how does he know it? He knows it only by having come to God, and of course, Solomon in particular is an heir of those promises of eternal life. But just on our own, with our own understanding of creation, our own understanding of what we see in the world, it just looks like futility. Something that could cause you to doubt that all of those things that that, uh, Solomon wrote in the first 15 verses are actually beautiful. God's comprehensive plan uh, for all time and places and things. Uh, Again, Solomon gives us a summary statement in verse 22. I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? Uh, Now this we should see in light of Solomon's earlier statement that man, being made in God's image, has a sense of eternity. Man has a sense that there is more than just this life, but like he said, not so that we can figure it out on our own. Our only recourse then is to take what knowledge we have, as Moses says in Deuteronomy, to receive those things that are revealed that we may do them, to fear God, like Solomon says in chapter 12, and to keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of men. The secret things, like Moses says, belong to the Lord. They must be left to him. Uh, Solomon continues to consider potential contradictions to God's beautiful and sovereign plan. Uh, In chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, he considers that some men suffer under oppression. He writes, Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power. So again, things that could cause you to doubt uh, the beauty of God's comprehensive and sovereign plan. That the oppressed are oppressed by people who have power. Uh, but the oppressed have no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. So again, as Solomon considers these occasions for doubt, he is truly grieved. Um, And you may be familiar with uh, sort of this way of thinking from Asaph's Psalm 73. Um, That if there is nothing further to this reality, then death is better than this reality. Uh, That oppressors prosper, uh, for Asaph it's seeing the wicked prospering, and their victims languish uh, under the oppression. Uh, But also, like Asaph, uh, and if you guys aren't familiar with that psalm, Pastor Brent, uh, back when he was 
still preaching here occasionally before we sent him to plant a church in Mansfield. He preached Psalm 73. You should be able to find that on our app. Uh, and that'll give you a good exposition of everything that Asaph goes through in that psalm. Uh, like Asaph, Solomon will go to the house of God and have his thinking on the matter reversed. Uh, we'll see that in the beginning part of chapter 5, which is where we're headed. But first, in verses 4 to 6, Solomon observes that men can also be cruel to each other by competing with each other. So not just oppressing each other, but, but even competing with each other. Uh, as if each would be better off if the other one were worse off, like it's a zero-sum game. I've got to get mine, and it's going to be at your expense, or you're going to get what I should have. He says, I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. Think of Cain and Abel. That's the sort of paradigmatic example in Scripture. He says, this too is vanity and striving after wind. Uh, although next Solomon warns that the one who would respond to simple rivalry by not working is also in trouble. He says, the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Uh, so in the end, he encourages moderation. Verse 6, one hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor. Uh, so, so, so have rest and have labor. Uh, don't respond to um, that situation under curse, either with just striving and beating your neighbor uh, or with just giving up and being lazy. Um, made me think of Proverbs 15, 16. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. Um, plenty of other Proverbs uh, speak to those realities. Uh, next, verse 7, Solomon considers the problem of isolation, uh, the problem of being alone, as a possible contradiction of God's beautiful and comprehensive plan. He writes, Then I looked again at vanity under the sun, there was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. So just someone completely alone, completely lonely, and still striving and toiling. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, and for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? Um, just again makes me think of the inward curvature under curse. Uh, we can strive and strive and strive in ways that are just to serve and to please self without ever thinking of others. Solomon continues, This too is vanity, and it is a grievous task. Um, so sort of here, as Solomon considers these potential occasions for doubt of God's plan, he's giving, I think he just feels compelled to give little uh, answers to it as he goes, even though the decisive answer is coming in chapter 5. Uh, his answer to um, the vanity, futility of solitariness of being alone is companionship. He writes, uh, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Uh, and he's spending a while on this. He continues in verse 11. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Um, I think the reason Solomon uh, spends a little bit more time on that one is it's so crucial uh, for us in terms of redemption is to turn away from ourselves and to turn, turn towards others, to turn towards our brothers and sisters specifically. Uh, of course, in Solomon's context, that was the nation of Israel, the people that God had called uh, to himself, um, and just by God's providence, 
we're in the midst of uh, Pastor Dan's series on the church, uh, where it's really being driven home to us where we are to find this particular kind of companionship. And Jesus uh, really hits on this um, when he talks about the things we might give up uh, to follow him and how part of that is relationships uh, and ways of not being alone. We might lose some of that, but we gain a hundredfold, he says, in the church, in this age. Uh, So that's the particular place where we can learn from Solomon's wisdom here and turn away from that inward focus and be in community. Uh, avoid that occasion for doubt that God's plan is good and beautiful. The final verses in chapter 4 highlight the fleetingness of popularity, specifically the popularity given to a king by his subjects. Um, And this may have been particularly personal to Solomon. You know, it's easy to imagine uh, that Solomon sort of felt like he had arrived early in his reign, particularly as we looked at his prayer at the dedication of the temple and God's presence coming and filling the temple, Solomon receiving more wisdom than anyone had ever had. Uh, So so there was kind of a zenith early in his reign. Uh, But then we find later, as he writes Ecclesiastes, that whatever he had attained, as good as it seemed, even at its high point, uh, as we've been seeing throughout our study so far, he now sees that his rule and reign and his pursuits in general have been vain and futile. Uh, And that would probably include the acclaim that probably came with his early reign and maybe waned uh, as he continued his reign. He writes in verse 13, A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. For he has come out of prison to become king even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I have seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. So that kind of popularity, that kind of acclaim, it can just come and go. Solomon's seen that. There is no end to all the people, to all who were before them, and even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him. For this too is vanity and striving after the wind. Uh, So in chapter 3, Solomon pointed us to God's perfect and all-inclusive plan as part of the basis for why we should fear him, part of the basis why we should turn back to God and receive his good gifts, even in their present state under curse, for God's sake and for our enjoyment. Uh, And then in this text just covered, he's proceeded to discuss several realities that might lead someone to doubt Uh, for one reason or another, that a good and wise and sovereign God really does have a comprehensive and beautiful plan that governs everything that happens uh, in this world. Uh, And I sort of wonder if if some of that strikes a chord with some of you. Uh, I think the one that I have in mind in particular is the problem of evil, uh, but also, you know, pain, suffering, everything that's a reality under curse. Um, Are you ever tempted to doubt God's goodness because evil exists in the world, or because pain exists in the world, because suffering exists in the world. Well, in chapter 5, Solomon answers this kind of temptation with some words of caution. Verse 1, he writes, Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. 
Therefore, let your words be few, for the dream comes through much effort, and the voice of the fool through many words. Uh, Now, you might recognize some uh, language from James, from the epistle of James here, but of course, it's the other way around. James gets this from Solomon. Uh, And it's fitting that James would have been a student of Solomon, uh, which we see in James's words. He says, this you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Uh, And in context in James 1, James is dealing with exactly that issue. Uh, He teaches in verses 13 to 18 that evil comes from creatures uh, and from from creatures' evil desires, whereas everything that comes from God is good and everything that is good comes from God as a gift. Uh, So uh, hopefully you can see that's a lot like Ecclesiastes. Um, I think that's exactly where James is getting his theology there. Uh, Now, you may have heard it pointed out, and rightly so, that James is not talking about being slow to speak and quick to listen to other people. Uh, That's that's not a bad principle, but that's not what James is teaching there. Uh, Rather, he is talking about being slow to speak against and quick to listen to God's word, uh, which is the solution Solomon is advocating for in Ecclesiastes 5 whenever we're tempted to doubt the goodness, the beauty of God's comprehensive plan for every time, every purpose, everything under heaven. If we're tempted to doubt that, this is the solution. Come to God's house and draw near to listen. Again, this is the solution that Asaph found in Psalm 73. When observing the reality of evil and the wicked prospering, Asaph became hardened towards God, like a beast, he says, until he drew near to the sanctuary of God, when his words became these, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. See the connection there with what Solomon's been teaching us? Why would, we, why would we desire everything that's futile? We should desire God, and that's what Asaph does. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far, who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. And I don't think I put that in your outline, but that is Psalm 73, verses 25 to 28. Uh, Now note verse 3, back in Ecclesiastes 5, the words that just come out of someone who is quick to speak and not to listen uh, in response to those occasions to doubt the goodness, the beauty of God's plan, uh, Solomon likens those words to the nonsensical dreams experienced by someone whose mind is not at rest because they had a busy day. Um, and that's maybe not immediately obvious in the NASB. I'm not, I didn't look at how it reads in the, in the ESV. But when Solomon says, for the dream comes through much effort, uh, you know, if you look at it a little bit more closely, I think what he's saying is when you, when you do a lot of work and you're consumed with a lot of things, you just have a, fit, a fitful night of restlessness and you have those kinds of dreams that are just chaos uh, and hard to follow. And he's saying, whenever you, just like a brute, respond like Asaph is talking about to those considerations of how the wicked prosper, 
and occasions to doubt the goodness and the beauty of God's plan, what comes out is not good. It's, it's chaos. It's not according to God's wisdom. So be slow to speak and quick to listen to God's word and seek that heart uh, that Asaph comes to when he finally comes to the house of God uh, and hears God's word. Uh, verse 4, when you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Um, now remember from verse 1, the context here is drawing near to the house of God, drawing near to worship. Um, in our worship, we must remember that if God is sovereign, if God owns all things and is in control of all things with his, again, his comprehensive and beautiful plan, then God does not need anything from us. We can freely offer and give back to him the goodness God has given to us. But Solomon is warning us basically not to bargain with God, not to vow rashly, not to think, you know, if I heap up promises of ways I'm going to reform my life or things I'm going to give to God, then I can get from God. That's, you know, as Solomon has been teaching us, that's not the right way to see it. The right way to see it is God is the giver. He's given even life under the curse as something for us to enjoy. And whatever we have, we can freely give back to him. We don't have to vow rashly. Uh, Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 8, for if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So, so give generously from what the Lord has provided to you, and don't think you have to heap up religious vows and, and commitments in order to gain God's favor. Uh, that's the reverse of the case. Uh, give to God from what you have and give sacrificially, but do not offer in pretense. Um, and, and we can learn this from the example of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. They, they um, were obviously heaping up for external reasons a uh, commitment to uh, honor God with their money, but they weren't actually doing it from their hearts. They were fully intending to hold back some of what they were saying they were giving and suffered the consequences of that. Uh, verses 6 and 7 warn clearly of the temptation to sin with our mouths when we consider elements of God's plan that do not seem right or beautiful to us. And this builds on his sort of earlier illustration of it's just going to be uh, nonsense. It's not going to be according to wisdom what comes out of our mouths when we respond quickly by speaking uh, in consideration of these things. He says, verse 6, Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the works of your hands? For in many dreams and many words, so again, pointing back to that illustration, there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. So just a, a direct uh, exhortation, admonition, uh, to turn away from fearing uh, other things, to fearing God instead. Uh, here Solomon repeats what he has now established as his dominant theme, uh, which, as I've noted since week one, uh, looking ahead to chapter 12, is this. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Um, so having established this point, Solomon returns to the problems he brought up previously uh, and gives some more explanation and justification of God's ways, starting in verse 8. He says, If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice... Some of those things he's considered earlier. 
denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight, for one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. Uh, So Solomon is basically saying God does provide a measure of relief for injustice, and he has done so since Genesis 9 with the Noahic Covenant, where he implemented uh, the idea that someone who takes the life of a man, his life is to be taken uh, by by a governing authority. Uh, God is not blind or inactive concerning the fact that there is injustice and oppression uh, in the world. Uh, And then in the closing verses of chapter 5, Solomon summarizes the takeaways from uh, the fleetingness and the vanity, uh, the futility of the pursuit of creation for its own sake, what we saw in the first couple of chapters. He's summarizing uh, in light of what he has taught us about God's perfect and beautiful and comprehensive plan in chapters 3 to 5 here. Verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. So there's, there's a key uh, summary statement. And remember from, verse, or from, from week one, chapter one, Solomon is uh, particularly qualified to give us this judgment because of the enormity of his wealth and his success at pursuing everything we could think uh, would be satisfying Uh, from a worldly perspective. His summary of that, of course, is this too is vanity. Verse 11, when good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much. So there's that moderation. Good work and good enjoyment of God's gifts. But the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. The anxiety that comes with having uh, many riches. Verse 13, there is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus will he die." So what is the advantage of him or to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. So, again, encapsulating that despair, that futility that we saw in the first couple of chapters. Uh, but finally, verse 18, Solomon returns to the point of the book, having now given us the way to the foundation of it all, having pointed us to the way to the fear of God, he again commends the enjoyment of life as God's good gift. He says, here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and to enjoy oneself and all one's labors, in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. Uh, So notice the universality there. Uh, It is available to all of us to receive this good gift from God, this fear of the Lord, which I mentioned earlier. The prerequisite for that is the promise of the gospel. And in the fullness of time, that has come to pass. Christ has been put on the cross so that we could turn from the futility of the creation and serving all of our selfish pleasures and indulgences and turning to God and enjoying life, being in 
sync with that perfect and comprehensive and beautiful plan that Solomon so poetically describes in the first 15 verses of chapter 3, we can have peace with that. And that's, that's what uh, Paul is talking about in Romans 8 when he talks about uh, all of creation coming out from under the curse and even the fact that with redemption having started, uh, everything now serves the purpose of bringing us to the love of Christ, bringing us to redemption. Uh, Solomon finishes verse 20. For he, the man who's able to enjoy uh, the gifts of God, will not often consider the years of his life. He won't be greatly shaken by the things that other men are going to see as futility and vanity because his hope is not in this life, because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. So chapter 5, verses 1 to 20, you're filling the blanks there. Draw near to God and listen to his word with reverent fear. This is the pathway to enjoying life as God's good gifts. So friends, in just a few minutes, we will leave this room, and it won't be long, and you will again face head-on the reality of life in a fallen world. There is sin, there is injustice, there is suffering. All of those things that Solomon has described um, kind of poetically in prose uh, and in poetry, uh, those are our everyday experiences. We are going to experience those things today. But let me encourage you with Solomon, be slow to speak, including just in your own heart. Instead of lamenting what you can't change, instead of complaining about circumstances over which you have no control, but God does, draw near to listen to God's word. And I think this is kind of a timely admonition as we're about to go down the hall or sit in here and sit under the preaching of God's word. Draw near to listen to God's word. And as you do, rejoice. Instead of focusing on those occasions to doubt the beauty and the goodness of God's plan, seek to receive as a good gift everything he's given in light of the fact that it's all purposed for our redemption, which is more unstoppable than the curse. As certain as the reality of curse is, even more certain is the reality of redemption. Solomon knew something of this, but not with the specificity and glory that we know it. So as you listen to this morning's sermon about how Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not succeed against it, rejoice and worship and trust God for the good outcomes he has promised. He is faithful. He's worthy of our trust and worship and fear. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for the glory of these realities, uh, Lord, that although we exist in a world where um, it can be hard for us to see the ultimate end if we're looking at creation or we're looking at ourselves, even impossible for us to see the ultimate end, that it is for your glory, we thank you for giving us a word that reveals this, that reveals the futility of trusting and hoping and fearing anything in creation Lord, instead of in you, we thank you, Lord, for putting your son on the cross, for making the way for us to come to you when we had chosen death and rightly deserved curse and everlasting banishment. We thank you, Lord, that you will receive us and allow us and enable us to enjoy this life uh, for your glory uh, with the anticipation of eternal life uh, with eternal joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.